0: We've we've been preaching a few messages here on the grace of God. And specifically last week we discussed this idea of being redeemed and chosen by God. And if you remember, we talked about what it means to be in Christ. And how literally we pour out all of our sin and lay it down at the cross. Everything that we are. And we take up His mantle. And we are in Him and we find our true identity. Jesus Christ has come to redeem us, purchase us back out of the hand of the enemy, bring us out of darkness and into light, and literally make us a new creation. Scripture says that we're given such a new identity that one day when you and I meet Jesus face to face, there's going to be a white stone for each of us with a new name written on it that only we and God, are sa- and God knows. And that's because we develop this new identity in Christ and it comes through relationship in Him. And so I want to move on beyond that because today I want to talk not just about being redeemed and chosen, but being forgiven and anointed. And there's a specific story, I believe, that will unfold this for us a little bit better. And it's in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. Let's read this together. It says, When one of the Pharisees... When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can we pray over that this morning. Father, we're just grateful for your word And Lord, for all of us this morning, we need you so badly. We don't even just need another message preached, but we need the anointing of your Holy Spirit to breathe life onto your Word so that it will penetrate the hardness of our hearts, that we can receive it, that we can have an honest evaluation of who we are, the condition we're in, but also, God, the power of your blood and what your redemption brings in our lives. We need to understand our identity in you, Jesus, and so I pray that through your Word, You would would help us to understand that, that we would put off the old man, we would put on the new that is in you, Jesus Christ. We love you, we thank you for it, in your mighty name, amen. You know, we, we, we said something last week, made this statement, that redemption in Christ Jesus isn't adding value to something worthless, but restoring value to something priceless. Human beings, Jesus didn't come to say, you know what, you're worthless, but it's okay because I'm going to fix you, I'm going to work on you a little bit. No, he says you were originally designed in the image of God, an image bearer of God created by, by God for a divine purpose. And when Jesus comes up, he sees that we are broken, that we're marred, that we're flawed, that we're covered in shame, that there's a little bit of filth on us. But he says, no, it's not that I've come to add value to something worthless. I've come to restore value to something priceless. And you get this image literally of like an old piece of jewelry or something that's banged up or maybe an old car sitting somewhere in a junkyard. And if you get the right craftsman or you get the the, the right guy that can fix that thing, he can clean that up, take out the dents, wash away all the filth and restore that to its original beauty. And that's what Jesus Christ seeks to do in redeeming us. He sees us exactly where we are. He sees us in our brokenness, covered in pain and shame and guilt and filth. But he says, I love that one. And I see how I designed them to be. And I've come to redeem them and restore them and send the Holy Spirit to do a healing work in their life so that they can be Recovered from what Satan has done in their life. Now this woman in our story she knew herself to be a sinner. Matter of fact she grew up in a society we're a little we're kind of the same like in the Bible Belt like we sort of look at people as sinners we don't just necessarily go around calling them sinners all the time. We do sometimes though but she grew up in a society where this was like really strong. She knew herself as a sinner they called her a sinner her lifestyle was sinful I don't know what she did perhaps some people say well maybe she was a prostitute maybe she just lived the life where she she had multiple men. Maybe she was uh, uh, addicted to alcohol and drugs. Who knows what was going on with this particular woman but she was known as a sinner and she comes into this place where the Pharisees are judging her and the way that Jesus responds to her and the way that Jesus responds to the Pharisees that are judging her actually reveals a lot to us about our identity as it pertains to being forgiven. I'll be honest with you, I think a lot of us, we we just take being forgiven for granted. We don't understand the full dimension of it because it's not simply that you're given a contract and say, well, you're forgiven, you say, well, thank God. No, being forgiven by God Himself means that He intimately knows you and there's reconciliation in it. There's this pouring out of worth and value. There's an intimacy in God Himself saying, I know you exactly for who you are down to the depths of your darkest part in your soul, but yet I choose to forgive you in that. There's something about that that happens in us when we realize that. And it's not just a contractual agreement that now I'm free but no, or, or forgiven. But no, I know God and I understand how much that He loves me in doing this. Now Simon invites Jesus over for dinner. He, he fails to show Jesus the basic respect that he, anybody in that day, if they had to come in, they would have washed their feet, especially to somebody that they uh, considered honorable. But Simon, see, he sees himself on the level of Jesus, so he doesn't even give him basic respect, doesn't wash his feet, doesn't give him a kiss, doesn't anoint his oil, do, head with oil, doesn't do any of that. And so they're talking, they're laughing, they're eating. They've kind of reclined because back in those days you didn't really sit in a chair, you just sort of reclined like this, you know, and eat grapes and whatnot. And so you imagine the scene, they're just sort of laying back, eating grapes, reclined at the table. Jesus over here reclined on the other side. And they're, they're, they're laying back, and this woman is aware that she's not allowed here. The woman would be fully aware that she is not allowed. As a matter of fact, this woman has been avoiding people like Simon her entire life. This woman is so covered in shame. Her, her identity is so wrapped up in what she has done and the sinful acts that she has committed that she is labeled sinner. I mean, she walked down the road, people would say, that's the sinner woman. I mean, can you imagine, this is her identity. She knows she can't go into that. She's been avoiding people like Simon her entire life. But there's something about Jesus that so overwhelmed her sense of shame and identity that she said, I am welcome when that man's in the room. Think about that for a minute. Because here's what Scripture says in 1 John 4:18. It says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with what? Punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What's this talking about? He's saying that perfect love casts out fear. That a lot of times people have this idea. I've even heard it said here recently when when discussing like hell and the realities of the afterlife. People have said to me, you know, well some people tell me uh, that we just can't serve a God that wants to send us to hell. Can I tell you that God wants to send no one to hell? That he wants you to experience his perfect love. And in Christ, there's actually a perfect love that drives out fear. And she experiences this perfect love from Jesus in such a way that the fear of shame or anybody judging her or anybody making her feel less than in this room is driven out. She doesn't care what these other people think because the only one's judgment who matters has already made a judgment. And she says she's worthy and she's accepted and she is beloved. And she knows that so fully that she don't care what Simon thinks. She doesn't care what the Pharisees think. So she comes into this room and she knew that she would find somebody who welcomed her. And most likely, here's the thing, people will say, well, she did this like she's pouring all this out because she knew that Simon wouldn't uh, respect Jesus enough. He wouldn't wash his feet. She knew the kind of person that, that Simon was. But I think that honestly the reason she's doing what she's doing is because she's had an encounter with grace. She's had an encounter with Jesus. And I don't know if she had it before she came into this meeting. I don't know if... She had just heard a story and the Holy Spirit drew her. I think probably on some level that maybe she'd had an encounter with Jesus. Maybe he'd been in town before and he met her like he met Mary Magdalene in her darkness and cast demons out of her and reached down into the depths of her soul where she'd been raped, abused, hurt, divorced, abandoned, rejected, all of those things and went down into the depths of her soul and drove out darkness. And in that moment, she met love, but she didn't know how to respond because she was overwhelmed. Maybe she had a few weeks to think about it and process what she'd been through. And all of a sudden she hears that the same man that set her free is over in Simon's house. She says, I'm going to go see that man because I know I've never met a love like this. Everybody has rejected me my entire life. Everybody's labeled me my entire life. But that man saw something different in me. And so I believe that her actions are an outpouring. She begins to cry And you see those tears dropping off of her face, and they touch his dirty feet. And she begins to use her hair, and her hair being down in that time would have also represented her as a sinner, living a sinful lifestyle. And she uses that hair to wipe his feet with her tears. And then she cracks open an alabaster jar. And this alabaster jar, she was probably relatively wealthy. Maybe she was in the sex industry. Maybe, maybe she was making a lot of money off men, probably religious men like Simon, right? Amen. And, 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 but yet she has this alabaster jar that was literally worth about, in our day, about forty dollars to $50,000. She cracks open $40,000 to $50,000 a year's wages in our day and bleeds it out all over the floor just for Jesus. As if to say, I know my real identity now, and it's not in any of those things, it's not in my past, but I'm cracking this open to let you know that everything that I have, I'm giving to you. She has this encounter, and then Simon sees it, because up to this point, maybe they didn't even notice she was in the room, but they start to smell that perfume, that ointment, flooding the room, and then all of a sudden they look over, and guess what, Simon gives Jesus a choice. He said, well, if this man were a prophet, he would know the kind of woman here that's touching him, and he would not allow her to, one, touch him, to kiss him? I mean, this is scandalous. We don't even let her around us, period. I don't know what she's even doing in the room. And so he offers him a choice. He says, if you really are a prophet, you would know better. But in Luke 7, it says, He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. I want you to notice this. He says, water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And I want you to understand this. What comes out of us flows from who we believe ourselves to be. That's our identity. And up until this point, she would not have been able to pour herself out like that because that was not her identity. She was wearing all of those labels. She, w- she was known as a sinner. She wasn't going into the house of God. She was just like everybody else on the streets. It says, I ain't going in there. The walls might fall down in on me. But all of a sudden something happened and something started to flow out of her from her new identity that was in Christ. 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. Do you realize that? Love is not about how much you love God. You can try, you can put in the greatest effort that you could ever imagine trying to put in, but we love because he first loved us. And it's about first receiving that love from him that moves us into a place where there's overflow. And she comes to Jesus with this identity, but she experiences cleansing, acceptance, and even anointing for life change. And I love this because... Here's the thing. What she's doing is she's pouring back on Jesus what he's already poured out on her. Do you know that true worship, like this morning, we're we're blessed with a wonderful worship team. And they're flawed just like the rest of us. But let me tell you something. At the end of the day, I truly believe that what they do, they do for the Lord. I believe that what they do in here on a Sunday morning when they pour themselves out, it's because during the week they've allowed God to pour in. And the truest form of worship that you will ever see is when someone is simply pouring back out on God what He's already poured into them. And sometimes we don't see worship taking place and people responding to God. You know why? Because they have not been to the feet of Jesus to allow Him to pour that love into them. And I'm telling you, that's the place where you need to be. That's the place where we all need to be. And in this story, there's three symbols of identity in this one interaction. Number one is water for cleansing. Number two is a kiss for acceptance. And number three is oil for anointing. Now all of us in this room, we're going to probably identify with one or the other if, you, if you're honest with yourself. Like some of us in this room will identify with, the, with this woman. When we take an honest evaluation of ourselves, we see ourselves as just broken and sinful and have an unmanageable life. And, and we're just so deeply aware of our sinfulness and our desperate need of a Savior. Some people even so much so live in shame that they can't ever get to the place where they can even receive the gift of forgiveness and what Jesus actually offers them they just see themselves as a legitimate piece of trash. Anybody in here, you don't have to raise your hand. But some people in here, yeah, that's me. I feel like a tra- piece of trash right here this morning. Now, some of us feel that way. Others of us, guess what, especially in the church, we identify more with Simon. We're like, you know what? I'm a pretty good dude. I keep most of the basic commandments. Matter of fact, in this room, I'm probably top five righteous right now. <laughs> some of y'all come in here like that this morning. I'm just going to tell you. You know, I'm probably top ten righteous. I mean, Clay, he's probably a pretty good dude where he's a pastor, but I'm a little bit holier than him. And I mean, I'm doing pretty good, and you know, there's pieces of trash out here on the road that uh, they just don't do as well as I do. You know what I'm talking about. And maybe you don't come out and say that, but deep down in your heart, you don't sense a need for grace and forgiveness. You think you've got it together. You feel pretty good about yourself. And, 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 this, and, and so we identify with this, and we can honestly be filled with both at the same time. We can be filled with an arrogant self-righteousness and also be racked with shame on the inside yeah. at the same time. And honestly, I believe that's the way the Pharisees were. They outwardly were full of arrogant pride and self-righteousness, but inwardly I believe it was a covering for the shame that they knew about the deep recesses of their own heart. John Maxwell told a story one time. He said that uh, he, he had some grandkids... And he knew these grandkids, and they, Grandpa would come over every now and then, and uh, when he would nap, they'd put Limburger cheese on his mustache. And so when he woke up, he'd be like, man, it stinks in here. And then he'd be like, what is this? He couldn't find it. He'd go into the other room. He'd be like, it stinks in here too. And then he'd walk outside to get some fresh air. He said, man, it stinks outside. It stinks everywhere. But the truth was, he was the one that stunk. And this is the way self-righteous people are. Every place they go, everybody else stinks. Everything else stinks, but the truth is the stink is on you. You're packing it around, and you don't see it because you spend time. Ju- I, I, get, I mean, you get around people sometimes, don't you? And, and all they can do is criticize and make judgments of others. And my point is, is probably, one, they're full of pride and self-righteousness. But two, inwardly, I would venture to say that they're racked with their own shame and guilt. And they're covering it in a facade. And they have difficulty loving people because they see themselves in that same way. And that's what a self-righteous person often looks like. Now this is difficult for the believer because with our identity in Christ, we need to understand two very specific biblical words. You ready? Justification and sanctification. Now, those are two very biblical words. I know they're hard, but justification means that when you get saved, I'm talking about when you come to Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you say, Lord, I ain't got it all together, but I believe you died for my sins and you put faith in Christ, what he's done for you on the cross, I need you to understand that righteousness is imputed to you like he puts a coat on you that makes you pure and holy on the outside. That means that all of your sin is forgiven. You are declared righteous. There's not one guilty thing that can be held against you. The problem with Christians is, is that they trust in their sanctification for their justification. What do I mean by that? The only way that they feel like they're right before God is if they're living really, really good day to day, week to week. And can I tell you that your your justification, you being declared righteous, is not based on what you've done this past week. It's based on what Jesus did for you 2,000 some years ago on the cross. And some people get scared. They say, well, that just means that people will take that and they'll go out and sin. No, we've already dealt with that. If you truly are saved, you've got a new spirit on the inside of you. You don't want to sin anymore. But when you do, and you fail, and you struggle, and you have weaknesses, as we all do, and we fall, guess what? We fall with that robe of righteousness on. That is our identity. Your identity is not last week's failing. Your identity is not your fight with your wife this past week. Your identity is in Christ and the fact that He has clothed you in His holiness. Now, I don't know if you all think that's good news or not, but it's good news for me when I'm having a bad week. You know what I'm talking about. That means that I don't have to say, well, I'm not worthy. Or I'm not this or I'm not that. Now, I'm not talking about flagrant sin because that's where sanctification comes in. You, with that robe on, now sanctification does an inner work of what you're currently wearing because you're not perfect, but you've got to move on and grow in this. Now, one guy says it like this. I like what he says, Richard Lovelace. He said, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. I'll just hang out on that one for a minute. Because I want to say this. If we judge you today and you say, all right, today you're going to die, you're going to go to heaven or hell, based upon this past week's attitude toward people, and based upon this week's prayer life and reading of Scripture. How many of you going to hell? I, nobody even laughed at that this morning. I mean, honestly, though, if you base your salvation upon your present spiritual achievements, you will live in radical insecurity, knowing, wondering all the time whether or not God fully accepts you wondering, what I need to know that this is based on what Jesus has done to have a solidified identity in Christ. Now, from that position, guess what? I'm able to grow because this week I had some struggles. But do you know what else I had? I had the Holy Spirit exposing sin in my life, exposing bad attitudes, saying, Clay, you need to work on this. And if you will partner with me, I will break that off you and I will transform who you are. Because he doesn't just leave you there. He clothes you in a jacket that says you're righteous. But then he sanctifies you within so that you actually become practically holy. But in the process, I still got the jacket on. You understand what I'm saying? Now this is important because it gives you a foundation. Then he says they're much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. The spirit of the Pharisees, you notice, it always judges other churches, other churches' styles. Well, I like this. Well, I like that. That is self-righteousness deep down in your heart. That ain't got nothing to do with what God is doing. Somebody amen me this morning. He says they cling desperately To legal Pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. So, what I'm saying is, as righteous as Simon is, deep down, as holy as he's living, he's not breaking the commandments, he's not committing adultery, but deep down, he knows about some own darkness in his heart, and he is insecure. And his insecurity leads him to a place where he judges others. And when he looks at Jesus, he sees no need for grace. He sees no need for forgiveness. And see, these two positions, Jesus undercuts both of them. To the shame-filled woman, Jesus pronounces forgiveness, restoring her to community and pouring love out on her. But to Simon, the self-righteous Pharisees, he speaks conviction of sin and pronounces judgment on him. He says, no, bro, I know you've kept the commandments a lot better than her, but actually you're in a worse spiritual condition than she's in. You imagine that? You can come to church over and over again week after week and be full of self-righteous pride and arrogance and do all the things right externally but be in a worse spiritual condition than somebody out here on the streets acting crazy. And the reason being is because you do not recognize your own sinful heart You don't recognize the own darkness in your heart. You don't recognize your need for grace and forgiveness yourself. Now, we swim in a culture that doesn't really know what to do with the idea of sin. You know what I'm talking about? Nobody wants to talk about sin, they want self help. They want to try to make themselves better on the outside when Jesus is trying to get deep in your heart and do a work on the inside and bring salvation. And when Jesus comes, what does he bring salvation from? He brings salvation from sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that there's not a person on this planet that has not broken God's law, that has not measured up to God's holy standard, which is fully revealed in Jesus. But people don't like sin because it's honestly offensive. I'm living my life you're calling me a sinner you're telling me that I, I yes you are and if you want me to I could get into specifics I could label the sins that you've committed we could get into sexual sin we could get into social sin we could talk about it all but see it's only when you see that and you come, have an awareness of it that you begin to recognize your need for a savior And I know I say this a lot, but man, it's being lost in our culture. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So he says, look. He says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. When we are initially saved, what do we do? We bring our sin to Jesus. We confess it. We lay it out on the table. The word confession in the Greek means literally to say the same thing as. You call it what God calls it. Somebody amen me. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to cover it up. Don't wallow in shame. Bring it out on the surface. Say, Lord, this is what you call it. This is what I've been doing. I'm confessing it to you because I want my fellowship and my relationship restored to you. And in that moment, you are justified. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are made holy and righteous in His sight because of faith in Jesus Christ. And it is an amazing thing. But see, guess what? Here, you know, people, A lot of people will teach, well, see, once you do that, you're forgiven forever. And praise God, you're, it, it, you don't have to worry about anymore. I need, to, I need you to understand something right here though about fellowship with God. It's not that you lose your salvation every time you make a mistake or you sin. Right? You're going to go out here today some of you probably going to cuss at your wife. Please don't. Please don't. Say Holy Spirit help me. But just because you fail that once does not mean you lose your salvation but you, it will hinder not only your relationship with your wife but your relationship with God. Can you imagine if I did something to hurt my wife, okay, and all of a sudden I just say, you know what, I know she's already forgiven me. I ain't even going to say nothing about it. Do you know what that would do to her? It would affect our relationship. She needs me to own up to it, doesn't she? She needs me to say, I did this, it was wrong, honey, please forgive me. Same way with God. He needs a relationship with us. And I need you to understand that Satan looks for opportunities to bind you to sin that you have between you and God. And there's something amazing. It brings deliverance. It brings freedom when you simply bring it into the light and say, Lord, here it is. I've done it. I confess it. Please forgive me. He says he is faithful and just to not only forgive you, but to cleanse you from all unrighteousness so that there's no longer any shame rooted and grounded in this. He says if we say we've not sinned, His Word's not in us. And what He means by that is that if you truly hear the gospel message, the reality that you come to, you acknowledge I am a sin. You have an awareness of your sinfulness. If you've never had an awareness of your sinfulness, you've probably never experienced the gospel message. Amen. Is this good this morning? Just teaching a little bit. Romans 5, 8 through 10, it says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. See, because you need to know the love of God. He doesn't just label you a sinner and a piece of trash. He says that even while you were sinners, Christ died for you. Since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life. And see, every single one of us, we were all sinners, but Jesus loved us so much that He sent His Son to die in our place. And now the Holy Spirit draws us, convicting us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And if you're not experiencing conviction, what I would say is, Lord, I'm asking You to come. Holy Spirit, do something in my heart. Take away the hardness and convict me of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come so that I can know my reality before You and I can turn to You, Jesus. Because I need salvation. Now, number one, the symbols for our identity, number one is water for cleansing. Because in Luke 7, he says, I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I want you to understand that she cleanses his feet with her tears out of an overflow of the cleansing she has received. You understand that? Your identity is what flows out of you. You notice, Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you even say on a day to day basis is wrapped up in who you believe yourself to be in your heart. And out of an overflow, she cleanses him because she has experienced cleansing. And throughout Scripture, water is a symbol for life, it's a symbol for cleansing, and it's a symbol for purification. Do you remember your baptism if you're a Christian? Baptism is important, right? If you you believe in Jesus, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, you've not been baptized, that's your next step, period, amen? But when you are baptized, it is a symbol of that cleansing. It's a symbol that you're buried into Jesus' death, and when he died, he took your sin and he buried it. And when you are raised up out of that water, it's a symbol that you're raised up in newness of life the same way that He was resurrected from the dead. You become new, but guess what? That water washes away all that you used to be. I remember coming to just an awareness. Now, it took me time to get there, but I remember becoming so aware of my sinfulness before God. It came through reading Scripture. It came through prayer. It came through hearing the Word preached. But it was like it mounted up and built up into a moment where finally I was completely exposed. And I realized my condition before God. And I remember after God set me free and I felt that cleansing, man. I don't know if you've ever felt it, but if you haven't, you need to sense, you need to feel this. You need to experience the cleansing of Jesus' blood where you know the past you and all your sins and all your failures have finally actually been washed away. That there's actually cleansing And what Jesus does for us, it's a real thing. You don't have to feel ashamed anymore because he's given you a new identity. And shame is a big deal. I don't know if if you recognize this or not because shame eats at the nature of who we are. If you feel guilty, you feel bad about something you have done. But if you're covered in shame, you feel bad about who you actually are. It gets into the root of your identity. And I believe this woman was covered in shame because it wasn't just about the things that she'd done. It was because those things that she had done had now become who she is. You understand what I'm saying? People get so wrapped up in that. I've I've counseled people that have been abused. I've counseled people that have been Rape victims, I've counseled people that have committed different types of sins. Maybe they were drug addicts and they stole, stole from so many different people and they did things that they are so ashamed that they literally think that God's grace is not strong enough for them. That God can't forgive them for the things that they've done. And, I know, and I've seen so many times that when Jesus enters into those wounds and into that past pain and those memories, they experience a love from God like never before, and He washes away and uproots that shame in their life. They realize that thing that happened to me, my worst mistake, that's not who I am. And so many people need that encounter with Jesus where they realize the worst thing they've, never, they've ever done is not who they are. The worst thing that's ever been done to them is not who they, who they are. They need to forgive themselves. They need to forgive the people that have sinned against them. And they need to forgive, receive the forgiveness that Jesus can, can give them and experience that cleansing that comes from Him. One guy said it like this. He said, shame affects us in some interesting and destructive ways. That's because we relate it to who we are and not just what we felt, thought, or did. It eats away at self-image, gradually destroying a healthy sense of identity. Intellectually, we know our identity is secure in Christ, but emotionally, we can see ourselves as uniquely and unforgivably flawed. This phenomenon is often referred to as believing more in what is real for us, our experience of shame and self-loathing, Versus what is true for us, God's immutable love for us and Christ's once and for all act of redemption for us, giving us forgiveness, acceptance, and security in Him. I want you to understand that I know some people, they feel shame, they feel self-hatred, self-loathing, they're locked into the abuse of their past, the sins of their past. Jesus says you may feel that way, that may be real for you, but it is not what is true for you. Because you are my beloved, the one who I died to cleanse, to forgive, to set free, to wash, and to give new life in you. And she is crying, sobbing, weeping over Jesus, wailing over him. Why? Because he set her free from who she used to be. She's got a new identity in Just now and the tears are flowing from her eyes because she realizes she is no longer what she has done or what has been done to her that that old nature's been put off that she now has a new identity in Christ and she can do nothing but pour her love out on him because she knows she's new and I wonder if we've we've ever really experienced that and sometimes You know, sometimes I get hardened over time. Anybody ever get that way? You just get hardened. You come into church, you feel nothing. You care about nothing. You're just sort of aggravated with the people around you. Every time that the Lord comes back to me, and here's the thing, the closer I get to the Lord, it's almost like the more aware I am of my sinfulness. But do you know what? It doesn't make me feel bad because I become more aware of His salvation, of His grace, of His perfection. So yeah, I become more aware of my flaws But at the same point, I become more aware of who He is to me. And that's the spiritual growth. Your spiritual journey is not you becoming more self-righteous and more perfect. Yes, you are becoming more like Christ. But even in that, you're not going to reach that point. You become more deeply aware of your flaws. But in the same point, you become more deeply aware of His blood, His salvation. That this is all on you, Jesus. And, and, and we're going through this process. You remember David, when he committed his, the worst sin you can imagine. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband killed. He was finally confronted and he confessed his sin. Now he was up under guilt and not shame because he had beloved identity. No matter what this dude did, he knew God loved him. And he was rooted in that identity. And this is what he said in Psalm 51. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your, great tra- tra- according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. This is what it means to be forgiven. Your slate is wiped clean. It's almost like I feel like I'm not speaking to somebody in here. But in my heart, I know that some of you are under the weight of this burden and you've never brought some of the things that you've done before the Lord to have that slate wiped clean. And he's saying, if you deal with this, I can cleanse you. I can restore fellowship. Some of you walk around with a block between you and the Lord. And you're wondering what that thing is. And he's just saying, if you just bring this thing to me, I can cleanse that. I can make you whiter than snow. Secondly, there's water for cleansing, but secondly, for her identity, there's a kiss for acceptance. And she kisses his feet over and over as an overflow of the acceptance that she has received. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, and I I love the story, I ain't going to get into the whole thing, but the prodigal son basically says, Hey, dad, drop dead. I want my inheritance, and I'm going to go do what I want with it. The father gives him his entire inheritance. He runs out, spends it all on crazy living. Goes to the casino, you know what I'm talking about, just gambling, drinking, doing whatever he can, getting him some women together. I don't know what he's doing. But he spends it all to the point where he ends up eating in a pig pen. Literally, he's got no place to lay his head. He's got nothing to do. He's at rock bottom, and he says within himself, even my dad's hired servants live better than I'm living right now. I'll go back, and I'll tell him to take me in as a hired servant. Maybe I can work my way back into his love. Somebody amen. Maybe if I do enough for him, maybe if I show him that I'm repentant, I'll I'll work my way back into his love. And the scripture says that he comes and it says in verse 20, Luke 15, 20, he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father humiliated himself so that he could go out and meet his son. He wasn't waiting on the son to do anything. Matter of fact, before he could even get out his speech, he puts a robe on his back representing righteousness. He puts a ring on his finger representing sonship. He puts new shoes on his feet saying, we're going to clean you and give you new life. And he kills the fatted calf, a picture of Jesus. And he strikes up the band and he gets Andy Foreman to play a solo, son. And they break out in a party. Because when you come home, no matter what sense of darkness you've lived in, no matter what you've been in, whatever kind of sin, when you come home, your dad is thrilled to see you. And he kisses your dirty, pig-slop face over and over and over again. Why? Because he accepts you. You need to know this as your identity. And when you experience that, people say, well, that boy, he got so accepted, he'd just go out and do the same thing again. No, He will not because He has experienced the love of the Father that transforms His heart and His life. It's the heart of God that returning from your worst moment, you're not met with anger and disgust, but with grace, love, and longing for your soul. You are a part of the family of God. That's your identity. His forgiveness unlocks the chains that bind you to your past. His forgiveness unlocks the chains that bind you to your past. And some of you of course, sort of been flirting with Jesus. And you just need to go on full on and say, Jesus, we, need, we just need to go and do this thing. Because I need to know, I need to break with who I used to be. And I need new life in you. Jesus tells Simon this parable. He said, look, Simon. He said, there are two people. Both of them had debts. One of them owed 500, the other owed 50. Which one do you think would, 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 would love the guy more? And he said in verse 47, right, he tells her, he he says, well, of course, it'd be be the one that was forgiven more. And then he says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, what he's not saying is, I know, Simon, you don't have many sins to forgive. And she's got a lot more sins to forgive. So she's going to love more. No, what he's talking about is her awareness of her sin. Her awareness, are you, have you even been aware? Because that's the problem with self-righteousness. That's the problem with growing up in church. That's the problem with being a religious person and doing everything right on the outside. He said the Pharisees, they clean the cup on the outside, but inwardly they're full of dead men's bones. You can have a religious external appearance and be rotten on the inside and not be aware of your sinfulness. And he's saying, you're religious, you don't really love Jesus that much, and the reason you don't pour out your worship and devotion on Jesus is because you don't realize what he's done for you. You think you're pretty good. Amen. You think you're pretty good. And he's saying, no, this is not what it's talking about. She has an awareness, Simon, and you don't have an awareness you don't have an awareness of what's going on in your own life and in your own heart. A better translation might be this. She is aware of her sins that have been forgiven and it is displayed in this act of love and worship. But people who aren't aware of the depth of their sin and how much they've been forgiven generally don't live their lives as a response of absolute devotion. She's so aware that she'll pour out anything. She'll give up her life. She's saying... Lord, whatever you are, I'm with it. Simon's like, well, let me think about this. I'm pretty good. I don't know if I need... I don't know or not. And and, and there's people who don't realize what God has done for them don't generally respond with absolute devotion. Number three, last one, the oil for anointing. She anoints him out of an overflow of the anointing that she has received from him. Now, I want you to imagine you become a worshiper like this, that you love God to the degree that you're willing to break a year's wages at his feet. And you're willing to just sit there and cry because you you are uniquely aware of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of devotion and love, but it's also an image of anointing and empowerment. Worship and devotion is interconnected with anointing. If you remember in the Old Testament when somebody would get anointed, like for example, King David, he got anointed, didn't he? And they poured oil on his head when he was just a boy. And he was... Separated for the king's purposes. Now, I want you to understand this because David was a very gifted young boy. The man could play uh, uh, one of them harps or whatever, about like, is like Andy Foreman for the world. I mean, you're getting some shout outs today, bud, but I mean, I about passed out under the power when you played that. <coughs> so, David has a gift. But see, people say, well, see, he was anointed. That's why he could play the instrument so well. No, no, no. No, he was gifted to play so well, but there were moments when he gave that gift to the Lord. The the anointing would come upon him and that anointing would drive out darkness so much that he would play before Saul and demons would flee. He had the gift, but it wasn't simply the gift that drove out darkness. It was the anointing. Why? Because he separated the gift for God's purposes. The anointing comes on those who have separated their lives for Him. When you were anointed in the Old Testament, you were now separated. If a utensil was anointed, it was now separated. This is for God's use only. When David was anointed king, he was for God's use only. But what about David's life? What about what he wanted to do? What about his future and his career? It doesn't matter anymore because when the anointing comes on you, you die to your plans. This woman had experienced such an encounter with Jesus that she pours out an anointing that had come upon her life because she was uniquely aware that now my, because He set me free from this, now my life is set apart from the things of this world and it is given completely for the purposes of God. That's what the anointing is. It's when everything falls. I remember when when the Holy Spirit started dealing with my life. Y'all, I got to be honest with you. I still get sicker than a dog coming up in here every Sunday morning, my heart pounding out of my chest. We probably honestly need to have a nurse on standby. This is not my choice. But I can tell you, I met Jesus in such a way where I said, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, we're doing it if I ain't got a dollar to my name, if I ain't got a pot to pee in, as old timers say, I'm going to do what you called me to do because I experienced His forgiveness. I experienced His redemption. I was cleansed of my unrighteousness. <laughs> he gave me a new identity. He called me by name. And I know nothing I gain in this life will be of any value compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be seen if I simply say, Lord, what, I, what I'm doing here is for you. And when you have that heart, the anointing comes. It's poured out. Can I tell you this? That anointing. There's one thing about gifting. There's a difference between gifting and anointing. Because anointing comes on those who are intimate with the Lord. Not just those who have a wonderful gift. Because there's tons of people who have a wonderful gift. Many people can play. Many people can speak. Many people can minister to the broken and just have compassion. But there's something that happens when you surrender that gift and everything you are and you enter into intimacy with the Lord. And all of a sudden, just like that, when she pours out that devotion... That's where the anointing comes. You want power. You want God to show up in your midst. You want healing to break out. You want to see salvation. You want to minister to people in power. You go to that place where it's just you and Jesus and you pour out everything at His feet. And there's a transfer of anointing in that moment. 1 John 2, 26-27. Here's what's interesting about the anointing. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you because... What's interesting about the anointing, if you grow up in a certain church where they talk about anointing all the time, and I, and, I, and I did, and it's like, whatever's the most spiritual thing in the church, oh, that person's anointed. Oh, that person's anointed. Oh, that's the anointing. And I was like, well, what is the anointing anyway? And if you get a really biblical concept of it, especially in the New Testament. John says it like this. He says that the anointing helps the church understand and hold on to the truth. When a church has the anointing, the truth is actually going forward that sets people free. That's how John looks at it. Here's what he says. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Because the world is trying to pull everybody away from Jesus. The last thing Satan wants is you breaking your alabaster box at the feet of Jesus and pouring everything out and saying, Lord, we ain't just going to be religious people. We're going to be on fire for you. We're going to be on fire. He does not want that. He does not want the anointing in your life. And when the anointing is not there and your relationship with God is simply going to church on Sunday, you go out into the world during the week and every lie that is told to you, you swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And you're drawn away. But there's something when you abide in Jesus and you go back into the presence of God and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and the anointing rests upon you. He said, John said, you know what? You know why they went out from us? Because they did not have that anointing. They didn't have the truth in their hearts. That's why they went out from us and they rejected the truth. And there's something that happens. When the Old Testament prophets were anointed, it was such a heavy weight that was on them. I like what Micah says. He says in verse, chapter 3, verse 8, As for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Imagine just fi- being filled with the power of the Lord just to declare sin to people. Now, i got to say, in the Old Covenant, there was no salvation offered except, hey, you boys better repent and start offering up some sacrifices. In the New Covenant, we say, hey, yeah, well, you're in sin. Guess what? Jesus died for you. You can be forgiven, set free, accepted. I love what Jeremiah said. He said, but if I say... I will not mention His Word or speak any more in His name. His Word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That is the anointing. There's moments when I'm preparing to preach and I say, Lord, I don't want to say that. And I try to move away from it. And I move over into a real soft, cushiony message that will encourage people and make people feel really good. And we probably have more More people in the church if we live that kind of life. But what I sense is an anointing. The Holy Spirit saying, no, you must speak this truth. You must speak this truth. And he says, and I can't because it's like a fire shut up in my bones. You need this fire shut up in your bones. It happens once again at that place of encounter with Jesus where you realize you're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're washed, you're purified, and all of a sudden you're willing to pour it all out at his feet. And in that intimacy, the anointing comes. The gift versus the anointing. I'm finishing here. Just give you four quick points. The gift can serve and build up self. Your gift will build up your platform, it'll build up your business, but the anointing always builds up Christ. When you see a gift functioning, everybody says, wow, that was amazing, you did such a good job. When you see the anointing functioning, people focus on Jesus. They have an encounter with Jesus. The gift is the birth to self, but the anointing causes the death of self. The gift turns your focus in when you say, Look at me, man, I'm awesome. Maybe I can grow in this. Maybe I can get some money out of this. Maybe we can do real well. But no, the anointing says, No, you've got to lay your life down what you want for what God wants. Thirdly, the gift gives goosebumps, but the anointing breaks the yoke. Somebody amen me. I, I'm not interested in just having a... look. Our church is, I think it's entertaining. Like if I came in and had no sense of God, I would have came in this morning and listened to the music and said, wow, this is entertaining. What a show. But see, because I'm sensitive to the Holy Spirit, I said, no, this ain't just entertainment. I sense anointing behind this. The power of God is present. I begin to cry this morning because the anointing breaks the yoke. You need to come in here on a Sunday morning ready to enter into the presence of the Lord. When you carried your depression and your shame and your anxiety, I don't want you leaving here with that stuff. when When I say come up at the end of service if you need prayer, don't sit in your seat and say, well, I'm all right. No, come forward if you need prayer and God will set you free. We need to step into a place where we begin to believe God for greater things. Where we don't just sit in complacency, but we're willing to break a box of alabaster ointment for the sake of Jesus. We need a fire in our hearts because I'm going to tell you something. The devil's got a fire in his. And the world is going in that direction. The gift gives goosebumps. The anointing breaks the yoke. The gift inspires, but the anointing transforms. I can watch a gift and I can get inspired. And I say, man, that's amazing. I wish I could be like that. But something happens when the anointing comes on that gift and it impacts who I am. It transforms who I am. It changes me. This is what He wants to release. You know in the last days Jesus said that there would be five. He told a parable. He said that the kingdom of heaven will be like this in the last days. There will be ten virgins, five foolish, and five wise. The wise took enough oil in their lamps to keep it burning. And many of us, we don't have enough oil in our lamp to keep it burning. And He's saying you need to come back to that place of intimacy. That place where you break that alabaster jar right open at His feet and there's going to be oil poured out in you to keep that lamp burning bright. Amen? This is what He's calling us to. Now I want you to understand that forgiveness doesn't end with us. Because if you've you've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but yet you still have bitterness in your heart toward a brother or sister or toward just some, some random Joe out there who's done you wrong, it's time to release them. It's time to forgive them. You you have received the forgiveness of Jesus and now He wants you to release others as well. Amen. To walk out and bring this redemption to people who haven't experienced it. I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. For those of you that are here this morning, I always give people an opportunity to respond. And I want you to. And so if the Spirit is working at your heart and you sense... That there's, con- there's conviction of sin. There's conviction of, of things in your life. And you say, I've not given my life to Jesus. I've not truly surrendered. I've not yielded. I've not confessed Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I've not brought my sin to Him. And I want to experience that. I want to know Him intimately. I want to have eternal life. If that's you, if you're in that place right now, as an act of faith, I want you to just lift your hand and say, that's me. I- I'm ready to enter into this relationship with the Lord. Anybody. I see a hand go up. I see another hand go up. Praise God. I see another one back there. Anybody else? Now, you three that lifted your hands. I want, church, I want you to pray for these people right now. Just under your breath, just pray for these people. You three that lifted your hands. If you would, I'd love to talk with you after service. But right now, I just want you to pray this prayer. And, 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 and it's just a prayer of faith. But say, Father, I've sinned against you. I confess my sin to you. And I ask for your forgiveness. I receive your cleansing for my sin. And right now, I confess you as Lord of my life. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you were raised on the third day so that I could be justified. And I'm asking you now to fill me with your Holy Spirit to heal every wound, to drive out all darkness in Jesus' name. I renounce darkness and I choose light. I choose Jesus today. I'm walking with you, Lord. I want to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen.